Open your Bibles, please. Uh, James chapter 2. I bet you thought I'd never say that. James chapter 2. And if you would follow as I read the first 13 verses. My brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with respect to persons, for if there come into your, unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, goodly apparel, and there come in also a man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. And say unto him, Sit thou here at a good place. Say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves? And are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not the rich oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by which ye are called? Fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that saith, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and do so, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty, for he shall have judgment without mercy, that he hath showeth no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment." We'll pause here in our reading. Let's pray. Father, thank you. The word again shines great truth into our hearts and our lives, especially as we allow it. And we pray those things that we hear within our ears, be buried within our hearts, find good, rich soil there, that it might bring forth an abundance of good fruit. We ask that your spirit will hide your servant, and bring forth the beauty of Christ in these things and the power of his word, convincing us and convicting us of that which is needful in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we open up a, a new year with a new chapter in our study of our digestion of the book of James. And we trust that the things that we've gone through in chapter one have not been forgotten. I know some of them, they kind of scoot on the side, but uh, the principles of living a life of faith was really a, a lot of the emphasis that James gave there. And also it carries on not only into chapter 2, but even past that. A lot of powerful truths that he provides for us. Remember also that James is a very practical book. We refer to it as a New Testament book of Proverbs. And as we get into this chapter, you'll see that this is no exception. So if you would, look out. We started verse 1, and as I read it again, to me, it sounds a pinch confusing. My brethren, 
have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. I don't know about you, but as I read that, that part there, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the wording seems a bit disheveled. Not only here in the King James, but most of the others. And it's a very accurate translation as far as the order of the words are concerned. But is James saying that we're not to have the faith of Jesus? Have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that what he's saying? Obviously not. So if that's not the case, what is it? If you remember the last time we were here, I had given you a, uh, this principle of filling out hospital forms, and they're always asking, what's your religion? You know, and, and how do you fill that in? Uh, they're really asking, what is your spirituality? What is your spiritual life? And I come to this verse, and I think James has given us the answer. Who are you spiritually? I am a person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. That's what he's saying. It has nothing to do with Jesus' faith and me, but this is how I'm holding it up. Jesus' faith is my faith. Now, this isn't just a moniker. This isn't just a name that I call myself, a badge that I put on. This is indeed who I am. I am in Christ. I am a Christian. It means that my faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And James adds that, the Lord of glory, the deity of Christ. He says, that is who I am. And if that's the case, I am not to be a respecter of persons. He says that the two can't go together. It's oil and water. You can't be a respecter of persons and can't be one who has Christ as the center of your faith. There is no partiality or favoritism. It's not right in the believer's life. Now, what is it to show partiality? Respect of persons. We don't necessarily use that phrase, but I think in general we understand the idea of favoritism. We use it all the time. Parents who sometimes have a favorite child, or maybe there is a favorite vacation place, or a favorite vehicle, or a favorite ice cream, you know. I prefer this one over that one, you know. And that's, that's how I understand this principle, generally speaking. But the word that is provided for us here is even more difficult. In the Greek, it means literally a receiving of face. A receiving of face. We'll understand that more practically by saying, judging a book by its cover. What you see is how you evaluate it on the cover. But it doesn't necessarily mean what is found within the inside. The idea of looking to see who someone is before deciding how to treat them. We do that as we come in the church, especially a guest or a visitor comes in and we look at him and, hmm, how will I treat that person? Well, it's kind of dependent upon how I view them, how I look at them. Practically speaking, 
what does respect a persons look like? I think for the most part in our day, there's three words that we use sometimes interchangeably. Bias, discrimination, and prejudice. And I like the third simply because prejudice is prejudge. Those two words in together give us an actual picture of what we think about. We prejudge our opinion, an adverse opinion or a leaning formed upon just grounds or just before sufficient knowledge. Again, evaluating only on the surface. I think we've all grown up with stereotypes. Mexicans are all illegals. Well, that's, you, you come to that conclusion. Politicians are all corrupt. Oh, that, that got a raise, didn't it, you know? The Chinese can't be trusted. Filipinos are always late. Now, it got a chuckle simply because we associate that, this, and we know that none of those are true. But stereotypes have that, we prejudge. In Kenya, a number of years ago, I found it, and I even dug a little bit deeper. In Kenya, a number of tribes are given uh, stereotypes. The Kikuyus are known as thieves. And amongst the various tribes, they say, if you're a Kikuyu, you're a thief. You know? The uh, Wakambas were known as drunks. Those up in the north, in the Pokot tribe, are known as cattle thieves, cattle rustlers. Now sure, maybe there was a time or there was a group or a situation when that was true. But all of a sudden there's an addition because of that title, because of that name, because of that tribe, that you are all like that. And I do it because I picture on the outside. In other words, we prejudge out of ignorance and we show partiality or will we become a respecter of persons when we base our treatment or our attitude towards them on something that shouldn't be? A surface evaluation. A surface evaluation. And as a Christian, we simply can't do that. Now, in our text, James gives us a kind of an interesting example it was probably commonplace, and at least commonplace as far as uh, what I think most cultures would have. Verse 2, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a man of vile raiment, and ye have respect unto him that weareth gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, say unto the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. I think what James gives in this illustration is reasonable, at least in the culture of the time they understood that. The worship service he mentions into your assembly, probably a home, in that they were Jewish worshipers, Jewish believers, surely could have been a synagogue because that was their place of worship for the Jews in New Testament times. And then he talks about this one man, first example who comes in, and he's literally described as a gold-fingered man. This is the only usage of this word in the New Testament. 
uh, not just a ring on a finger, but multiple rings on multiple fingers, and multiple fingers with multiple rings. And then he talks about his clothing. He says, in goodly apparel, in other words, this is bright and brilliant clothing. Number one, this man wanted to show himself who he was. He had a, a picture of a principle to clearly to show by his expensive clothing and by the bank that he was carrying on his hands that he was a man of importance. And it, it gleaned the proper response. His desire was to show it off, and they saw it, and they acted accordingly. The second character that we mention here, uh, James mentions, in the assembly, he says, a poor man in vile raiment. It's doubtful that this is at the same occasion. In other words, people are sitting there in the synagogue, and then all of a sudden one guy comes in, and then another guy comes in. But it's a principle that's laid down, not only just about the men, but how they dealt with them at any time, at any kind of service. He walks in. He's quite the opposite. He is so poor and so destitute of life that he's, in essence, referred to as a beggar. He has nothing of this world's goods. He is so impoverished that he is a man who would probably cover his face with one and hold out his hand for the other because he just has nothing, nothing at all in his life. His clothing, no doubt there was a shameful odor about him reflecting his condition. He doesn't want to be seen. James paints a picture so dramatic in contrast here no doubt some reality, but the principle isn't the men. The principle is the reaction, the participation of the congregants to those two men and how they would see them as far as partiality or favoritism or discrimination. To the well-dressed man and this opulent taste, sit down here, right up in the front. He says, this is a good place. It has a cushion You'd be able to hear real easily, and you'd be able to be seen by other people, you know. The second man comes in, and he refers to them. He says, you stand over there, or you sit down at my footstool. Over there, out of place of everybody else, purposely. Uh, no conspicuous in situation here. Even sit on the floor, you know. Get out of the way. There was an evaluation of those two men as such examples being made based only upon what they had seen. And it wasn't only an evaluation, but it was an action of how those people were treated. Again, a surface look, not knowing the heart, not knowing the situation or anything that went on about it, but they acted in accordance with how they felt by issuing favoritism or prejudice or, or, or being a persons of respect. Thinking of his Jewish audience, and I think of the day that this congregation was growing up in, I don't think uh, James really had received any word. Uh, James didn't know about a situation, or nobody wrote him and says, James, this is what the people are doing. I think he knew these people, and he knew their hearts, and he knew the type of, of display of that which they offered in this day-to-day -day life. I think of Peter, Acts chapter 10, 
God revealed to him on a strange rooftop vision that the gospel was now, Peter, the Jewish man of Jewish men, is now open to Gentiles. And, and to this point, Peter wouldn't have nothing to do with the Jews or to the Gentiles. Nothing to do with the non-Jews. God's people were the Jews, and Peter represented the type of thinking in the situation went on. As the vision had finished in, in verse 34, that same chapter, Peter says, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. No longer Jew and Gentile, two separate. Peter says, I see now by this vision, God, that you'd given me, that you're not a respecter of persons. Up to this point, Peter felt God chose Israel. They were his special people. And in, in, in scripture even shows that. But that was now different. We'll come, come back to the verse later on. But I think if it's something that we recognize how the Jews felt. But what about the Roman world in which they grew up in? In other words, those to whom James is writing lived in a Roman world. Their culture was Jewish, but the Romans controlled all of the things that were going on about them. And I think it obviously affected not only their church life, but how these people acted in regular life. Romans, the Roman world, was filled with a strong prejudice and hatred towards all types of people, and they put them in classes, according to ethnicities, according to nationalities, according to religion. People who were habitually and permanently pigeonholed because they were Jew or Greek, because they were rich or poor, because they were slave or free, because they were barbarian or non-barbarian. If you're in the Roman world and you grew up thinking like that, you put people in these categories and you're stuck with it. You're bound within this prejudicial attitude. And to this end, the church had played out these prejudices. They acted just like the world in which they lived. Later on, James writes in verse 6, But ye have despised the poor. Stand over here. Get out of the way. Shh, just stay over there, you know. We don't want to have anything to do with you. So it was obvious the direction that they were moving. And as I said already, I don't think this was a church attitude only. I think it was part of their regular life, the way they did business, the way they acted in the marketplace, the way they treated family members. It was just part of their very nature and how they grew up. I'd like to read a little paragraph from author John Corson. He says, if you knew that in 10 minutes you would have a half-hour meeting with Donald Trump, would you comb your hair? Brush your teeth? Think about what you would say? What if you knew in 10 minutes that you would meet with a homeless man? Would you expend the same kind of energy? He says, this is what James is getting at. We are all vulnerable. We're all guilty of treating people differently, depending upon how we view them outwardly. But almost without exception, the irony is that the people we try to impress the most 
are those who care about us least, while the people who would really open, be open to receiving from us are those for whom we think we do not have time. We evaluate on the surface because of how it would be beneficial to me or to us. And those people in general don't respond like we would like them to respond or think they would respond because they really don't care about us. But the people who are in situations of life who more than likely or who could indeed be people who would respond to what we would be saying to them, a gospel invitation, a help or assistance or whatever, we don't have the time for them. But we go further, I want us to tackle this first principle that's behind verse 1. Why as believers are we not to show favoritism? That's the whole key to this chapter, and it's the whole key to what takes from here on. What's, what's, what's wrong with that? You know, and I think there have been occasions in our past where we say, hmm, I was right, I told you. They, or he, or she, or them, it, yeah, I was right about that. Go back to Acts 10.34, and Peter says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. You see, Peter's prejudice was shattered when he recognized that the God he served did not have the same attitude as he did. The God whom Peter had given his life as a Jew up to this point, and then from then on, looked at people differently than Peter had and acted differently and analyzed them differently. Prejudice is not in his nature. It's not a characteristic of our God. It's not something that he's known by. As a matter of fact, the truth that God is not a respecter of person is found throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, in one form or another. Clearly laid out. Think of the time when the Lord sent Samuel out to the place of Jesse. Remember Saul was kind of floundering. Kingship, you know, his, uh, his uh, what do you say, his favoritism percentages, you know, people have, polls are taken Saul's not doing real well, you know, the exit polls are, he's going on down, you know. So God says, let's go and find somebody new. And he tells Samuel, go out to the house of Jesse. And he says, uh, Jesse's got a whole bunch of sons. And, and he said, well, let's line them up. If, if, if the prophets come here to, to anoint and to say this is God's choice, then so he picks the first one and it's Elihu. And I'm kind of guessing that Elihu was a man who was probably in position of strength and probably good looking and say, he's the oldest, he's got the smarts, he's, you know, he's the best man. To this response uh, comes from the Lord to, to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We do that. Samuel, 
Don't look at what you think. And they failed in that very matter with Saul. They looked at Saul, and he was kind of a hiding behind the boxes, you know. And, and well, he'd be a great king, just like all the other kings in the world, you know. Let's choose him because he looks so great. Saul didn't want to become king. Mankind tends to do that, how the candidate is groomed in all areas. The first impression may be the only impression he or she gets before an audience. So they make sure that all of the pieces are put together, you know. Doesn't matter what he says, what he believes, you know. The poor candidate up there in Long Island, you know. He says he lies about his, his heritage, he lies about his education and so forth. And everybody says, boy, this, he's a great guy, you know. No, it's not going to go that way. After a time, they find out that he's really a skunk and it's too late. How many young men and young women have searched for life's mate? only to become devastated later on because they married for what they saw. Entered into a relationship that is supposed to be for till death do us part, and all of a sudden, why well, he got old, or she got old, or, you know, they're just, they don't look like they did that first night or whatever, you know? Just dump them. Man looks at the outward appearance. But not our God. We go to the New Testament and we find the Lord Jesus Christ graciously accepting everyone. We think of his as the eternal God of his ministry. Irrespective of their situations, Jesus accepted. He was as polite to the woman at the well as he was to Nicodemus. He was as gracious to the woman who touched the hem of his garment as he was to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He was open to the blind, poor Bartimaeus, as he was to the rich young ruler. He had no respect of persons. He was as honest and forthright to the Syrophoenician woman as he was to Pilate. He treated everyone with the same love, the same interest, the same care and concern. He was not condescending when he was dealing with the publicans and the sinners, and he did not cower or compromise when he was dealing with those who occupied seats of power. He gave the outcast and the untouchables the same gentle, loving compassion that he extended to the scribes and Pharisees. Sometimes the Lord did not approve of the people's behavior, but he looked beyond that to the individuals and to their deepest needs and treated them with dignity no matter what. Now, some would criticize that principle and say, well, the reason was is because people came along and they created a Jesus in the New Testament that, you know, it was a fake. We just want to give them the highlights. But if we understand the scriptures as they truly are, infallible, without error, without mistakes. We see the character of Christ exactly as he was. Whether he's the, the child, whether he's at the wedding of Cana, or whether he's hanging up on the cross, whether he's there being uh, beaten at his, at his trial, or whether he's there with feeding the, the thousands and thousands along the Sea of Galilee. He treated them the same because he saw them the same. His heart, his actions were the same. 
Pilgrims, you found acceptance and welcome into the arms of Jesus while you were still a sinner. You were miserable, blind, deaf, and dumb. He is no respecter of persons, and that goes with us today. How many of us would be able to name ourselves in the Lamb's Book of Life had God been a respecter of persons? You know, what characteristic could he find in me, in any of us, and for him to say, Jeep, nope, look at what you've said, Jeep, look what you did, Jeep. I know what's going to take place here. Jeep. Heaven would be empty. There's nothing. Since that time, he has never abandoned you. He's never failed to hear your cry. The love that he showers upon you every single day is the same love that he does for all of his children exactly all the time, and it doesn't matter what station in life they are. He loves this one as much as he loves this one. The poor ignorant guy way out in the middle of the deserts in Asia, he doesn't have a clue about education, but comes to Christ as his Savior, is the same Savior in the same amount of love that he pours out to us today. When you felt, when you fell, he was there to pick you up and carry you through. When you sinned, he was there to the very end of your sinning, but graciously, graciously accepted your repentant heart, and welcome you back into his open arms. If this is the type of God that has redeemed us and brought us to himself, then James says, you know, this is a situation that you profess now. Do not have a respect to persons because you have the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says that's something that has to be dealt with, to be worked on. Third stanza of the hymn by Hattie Buell says, I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. I'm a child of the King, a child of the King, with Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the King. How are we as the children of the king to act? As we see out in the within, how do we analyze? Not only how do we analyze, but how do we act and react? You know, and, and if we're going to show a sign of hands, so talk about failures, yeah, yeah, we've all done miserably with it. It's not something we've achieved that, to the level that we ought to. But it's laid before us here within the scriptures to say that this is something you must be aware of. This is something we have to be able to say, Lord, help me to deal with this. As the day begins, God, give me, give me something more than a peripheral, superficial vision of my life today. The people I will come in contact with, the situation that may rub me raw, that, that, that person, that family, that, that whatever it was, you know. Those people who were around our house shooting off those rocket bombs last night at, I don't know what time it was, you know. I have to look at them differently, you know. <laughs> Every situation. And then at the end of the day, to give me a sensitive heart to be able to say, Lord, I blew it on this one. 
I didn't realize. I had no idea. Forgive me. And put me in a place where I won't judge or prejudge or be prejudicial or, or judge a person outside of what I know within their hearts. And if there's a place that's wrong, then help me to be a person to come to them and speak to them about it. You know, what you've done is wrong here, and, and this isn't right. How can, how can we, you know, Matthew 18 tells us, as, as far as believers are concerned, how we deal with that. As we enter to 2023, wow, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Remember when Y2K came around, we thought, that's ah, the end of the world, you know, and now we're 23 years after that. Amazing. Let's live and act as child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's honor him. You know, there are times of great elation and, and joy, but a lot of our life is not filled with that. Let's begin with this very principle. Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of our, our time now that your spirit has opportunity throughout life to speak to us, but may we reflect upon this simple truth, something we're all guilty of, something that we've uh, stepped on the toes of others, we've prejudged, we've acted in a fashion that is unbecoming a child of the king. Um, we thank you for your graciousness and kindness to us that where we have failed, you haven't held it against us, but you've brought it heavy upon us in order that we would not rest upon our own flesh, but that we would rest upon you. And you've brought us to principles of forgiveness and restoration. And so may we be people who avail ourselves not only to that, but assist our brothers and sisters in Christ to that. And likewise, for those who are lost and dying in the world around us who have no clue of the freedom that Christ brings. May we understand as blindness and deafness in their spiritual lives causes them to do that. May we be gracious to them. Likewise, uh, seed these things in our hearts as we go about our business this day and look forward to what this year uh, has for us. Thank you for your faithfulness in the past. I thank you for your faithfulness in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.